From MZ Studios in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. Welcome back to the Tennis Revolution podcast. We're glad to have you. Glad you found us again. Um, we uh, we are uh, down a man, so to speak, or, or a woman, I should say. So Savannah is, uh, I don't know where she's at, on vacation, searching out more tennis courts somewhere. I don't know. Um, but uh, we're here. I've got Corey here. How are you doing, buddy? Doing great. Happy to be here as always. All right. Savannah's out studying tennis tapes and researching, I'm sure. And you're the life of the party as usual. You come on and fireworks just shoot out of the mic. It's incredible. <laughs> this guy. Um, well, the downside is that Savannah's not here. The upside is is I will think I'm right the entire podcast today. Yeah, I've got to be the adversary today. Are you going to be able to step up to the challenge and tell me I'm an idiot? <laughs> I'm going to fill her shoes today. All right. Uh, I am an idiot. But uh, but today's topic, I think I'm pretty passionate about, and I think I'm pretty on point about, and I might be making fun of you a little bit. Well, I'm used to that. All right. So uh, it's a kind of a quiet period in tennis. I was looking back at some stuff, including that Federer uh, Sampras match that we discussed. <laughs> it is the only time they met. Here we go again. It did go. It did. No, no, no. Nothing. Not my. I shouldn't even tell you now. Uh, my my uh, my position may have been weakened, yeah, slightly, because apparently, because I didn't, I, I thought it, it, I, I seem to remember it being right during that period where he was really struggling. Sampras, you mean? Right, but apparently he had just won seven out of the last eight Wimbledon's. Okay. <laughs> so that doesn't really help my uh, cause. But he was in a little bit of a drought at that point. He yeah. only won one more major after that, right? Which was the U.S. Open, right? Yeah. But but still, I mean, it was it wasn't it wasn't uh, as uh, you know, he wasn't as in much of a slump or in that period as much as I thought. I mean, he came right off of you know, like I said, winning seven out of eight. Well, and Federer hadn't won anything yet then either. He was, right. I don't even so, know if he was top So 20. Sampras was better than I thought, and Federer was worse than yeah. I thought. So, <laughs> oh, and I guess uh, Nadal's still in the discussion, too. So <laughs> well, Savannah's not here, so right. no, it's so, just Federer and Sampras. Yeah, so, um, but anyway, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, but yeah, I thought I'd bring that uh, to everybody's attention. I'm, I'm honest, right? So if, um, if, my, if my position's weakened, I'm not afraid to say it. So it's not, I don't think he's the greatest ever. Still, Federer. I don't think Federer is still the greatest ever um, until he wins the French this year. Is that what? Well, you're already there, aren't you? Pretty much. I mean, did you talk yourself into it? Yeah, I mean, I think he's the greatest ever. But if he were to somehow win that, that would just cement it because he's won two clay court majors on top of everything else. Yeah, because he didn't. Anyway, that's a that's another. We've already been down that road. We've been down that road, and and hey, like they all think, all the older guys are better. So what are you going to do? I'll take their word for it. So, um, but that kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about. 
and this uh, this equipment we're on, this, these microphones and the table we're sitting at, and the studio is not ours. Yet. Right. And so, but, uh, so keep that in mind. It's like when you borrow somebody's racket because you broke a string, you can't f- hit it against the fence when you miss a shot because it's not yours. So just remember, this equipment isn't mine. Uh, and so when I talk about how stupid the USTA is and I get all pissed off about it, Remind me not to break mics and knock the table <laughs> over and rip TVs off the wall because uh, the studio is uh, worth more than me. So, um, But, yeah, that's the road I want to go down um, is uh, the USTA. Now, what is your involvement or, you know, how much do you come in contact with uh, or use the USTA in your daily play, playing and your professional, your teaching life? Yeah, I mean, not as much as I once did when I was at, a public facility, I was doing more USTA programs, but I'm still a USTA player. I've played, you know, tournaments and leagues for 15 years now almost. So I'm, as a player, I'm still involved in the programs, but as an instructor, there's really not much, you know, cooperation between me and them outside of just, you know, the tenant under tennis structure of lessons in terms of tournaments and, you know, organizing those kind of things, USTA events. I'm not really involved in that side anymore, but I have been. Right. Um, now, we're in a major metropolitan area, the DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so we're talking about Fort Worth, who's pushing a million people soon. I don't know if it's there now, but it's getting close. And then Dallas, which is, you know, two million. Right. And then the greater area is three. It's got to be three plus. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and geographically, it's huge. So we have a ton of playing opportunities, leagues, et cetera including non pretty popular non USTA leagues. Right. right. So, mm-hmm. um, and other big cities do. I know Atlanta is, is kind of the, the benchmark for that whole situation with, with their ultra pro, you know, the Atlanta tennis association leagues where people don't even want to play USTA because there's too much going on. You know, I always say that, you know, golfers join country clubs so they can have nobody on the course and, Tennis people join clubs so they can have lots of people on their on their courts, right. and so you want you want a lot of participation. You want a lot of different opportunities and all that. And in big cities like that, I mean, the USTA doesn't have a huge presence sometimes. Um, but within the landscape of our game, they have a huge presence, and and that's kind of what we're what we're talking about. But uh, not just, but not really. I mean, we'll touch on leagues and that side of things, but really it has more to do with the attempt, the failed attempt, in my opinion, to um, develop players. Right. Develop players. Um, Which is probably at the top of their list in terms of their mission, I would assume. Well, it it's funny because I think their mission used to just say, grow the game. So, which to me means get more players in, and keep more players playing, you know, multiple times or how, you know, they categorize, categorize participation in a bunch of weird ways. Um, you know, so somebody that goes out and plays once is a certain category, you know, plays, you know, core tennis players is another right. category where you're playing a lot. And I don't know how they find this stuff out. I mean, as far as USTA, all their data has got to be really, well, they use their data, their programs. And then, of course, the TIA, which for those out – you want to tell our fans what the TIA is? Well, you know, it's there's so many organizations 
you know, with an industry association is that we were talking about. Or, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they're going to have their own measurements. USTA is probably only measuring their members. So I don't know how valid that is. There's well, a lot of people that play that aren't USTA members. Well, I think the USTA uses their, their participation numbers and their programs, but then there's some overlap with the TIA. So the TIA is the Tennis Industry Association. And basically what it is, it's a trade organization. Uh, like the Trade Federation of Star Wars, and uh, <laughs> Never which is seen Star Wars, by the way, which is evil. Yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah, we're gonna have it's a whole separate <laughs> podcast, man. Um, Star Wars reviews, but uh, but yeah, so they, it's made up of you know like will manufacturers, you know, people that have a uh, financial interest in in the tennis um, industry doing well, and so racket manufacturers, ball manufacturers, all that kind of thing, and. Um, and so they are not only interested in growing the game, but pretty detailed market analysis because they've got to know which way the wind's blowing so they can know which way, you know, to put up their sails. I don't know. I, <laughs> I ran out of steam on that analogy, but, but you know what I'm saying? It's, right. You know, they need to be aware of what's going on so they can adjust. So they have a lot of detailed uh, information in both on their website and they also have a magazine that goes out monthly, which you get, and, yeah. and you're a tennis nerd, so right. of course you read it. I race to the mailbox every month. <laughs> for, <laughs> for a trade association <laughs> magazine, you are such a loser, <laughs> a tennis loser. No, but listen, uh, we need people that are tennis maniacs doing that kind of stuff. Um, so, all right, so anyway, so let me, let me tell you where I, I sort of, got the inspiration to start talking about the USTA and how what a half-assed job they do. <laughs> I'm not biased, am I? <laughs> so there's a podcast I listen to, um, and it's it, it's a, a podcast done by um, um, my mentor, or and a, a mentor to a lot of people. He's an inspiration to a lot of people. I don't have my own podcast. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's you. <laughs> how did you know? I was trying to keep it a secret. Um, so Chuck Creasy, oh. who, have you heard of him? I have from you. Oh, okay. So he was a uh, college tennis coach for a number of years, over 30 years at Clemson University. That's kind of where he made his bones, as it were. And, uh, I mean, winning his coach in ACC history, uh, you know, I think one of his teams reached the semifinals of the team event, you know, so several players on to the Pro Tour, um, just all kinds of accolades that I'm not going to read out because he's too humble to give a shit, to be honest. And I mean that, um, which is one of the endearing uh, things about him because uh, as, as much as he has accomplished, he never sticks his chest out about it. Right. And furthermore, he is one of the most generous people, and uh, I don't mean money, although, Chuck, if you want to let me borrow a couple of bucks, hey, telling you everybody you're generous. No, but he's generous with information. I mean, you know how coaches are. They're they're psycho. Right. You know, you know, stories about Bill Belichick. Yeah, stories about Bill Belichick, you know, running, you know, well, he's actually the one doing the spying. Um, you know, closing practices and, and practicing the secret locations. You know, and you're talking about an ACC coach, a lot of pressure uh, to win, a lot of competition, high level he's got to compete against. And, you know, but he gives everything he he has. He gives away. I mean, he's written books. Give you know, he gives talks, and you know, uh, the old saying, is, you know, that he taught me everything I know, but he didn't teach me everything he knows. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. But he, but he would to anybody, not just me because I'm awesome, but anybody. Right. And and so he's really generous in that way as well. 
So I don't know why I went on a, a, a diatribe about the great uh, Chuck Creasy, but but um, but in any event, he has a podcast. So old dog, new tricks. I right. mean, he's an old dog, old school, and he is on a podcast, which is impressive. So in the words of Savannah, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> he knows what he's doing. And so one thing he was talking about the other day, and, and he's been involved with USTA um, from the coaching standpoint in terms of it, one of the national tennis centers. And, and so he's kind of been in the mix of all that crap and all the bureaucracy. I hope all these papers, like, I hope, hope the audience can't hear. I think I'm writing a research paper, all these paper I'm moving around. It sounds very important. It could be. It could be. I'm, I'm reading comic strips. That's all I'm doing while I'm busy. <laughs> so in any event, so his, so his website, you can get, it's hard to get to his podcast because it's on a, it's on a network. So it, uh, which is called the Yellow Ball Network. So if you go to iTunes, you basically just type in American Tennis and you can find it. I don't know how Androids work. I think they just catch on fire. I'm not really <laughs> sure how all that happens. but On planes. Yeah. So, uh, But if you just go to uh, your iTunes and type in American Tennis, then you can get to it. Or uh, I believe you can get to it from his website, which is Chuck Creasy, and his last name is K-R-I-E-S-E dot net. And then you can find it, find it there. And so now his his podcast is a little more geared towards that higher end, you know, um, coach is sort of. So if you're a coach, you're going to be really into it. I mean, right. I mean, it's interesting. Anybody can listen to it. And there's a lot of lot of great, you know, gems that he he uh, uh, gives out. But it, it's it's a little more geared for towards people that are in the industry. But um, but uh, nonetheless. Um, so he, a couple of podcasts ago, he was talking about, um, the USTA and, and, uh, some things they might want to change if we really want to achieve the things they act like they want to achieve. Right. And so we'll, we'll talk about those things, uh, when we come back. It's time to join the revolution. Go to our website, tennisrevolutionpodcast.com to get the latest episodes, email us your questions and comments, or give us show ideas. All right, we're back. So, uh, pretty big cliffhanger. I know everybody's on the edge of their uh, edge of their podcast waiting. So, so his his general thought in regards to the USTA and how they can help the development side, the player development side, which means from whatever level all the way to trying to get players in the top 100 and beyond. So he, he has experience doing that, and so that's kind of where he's coming from. Uh, he I, I think he coached a, a girl to the Junior Wimbledon Championship. I mean, so we're talking about real deal here. Right. I mean, not just college, but all of it. Yeah. So he really wanted to make a, a distinction between the performance or, you know, that higher level achievement, you know, Pat, Pat he doesn't like pathway. He's going to yell at me. Uh, but that sort of track and then everything else. And there was a lot of – I won't go through everything he went through on his podcast because that would be plagiarizing, I think. I don't know what it's called in radio when you steal stuff. Um, sampling. There you go. I'm an I'm a MC. Um, 
So he, but one of the things basically he wanted to do is really make a delineation between those two things. And he kind of went through some things, some details like changing the age brackets the way they are. So we go 10s, 12s, 14, 16s, 18s, and he thinks it should be 14 and under and 18 and under, and that's it. Yeah, which um, I think is great. Yeah, and, and uh, there's some precedent for that because apparently they do that other places around the world. Um, when essentially, essentially high school is in one category and everything else is below that. Right, right. And, and well, yeah, and he talked about high school uh, and, and, and talked about actually 19 and above, actually. So, you know, adult, high level, right. you know. So, I... I liked a lot of the stuff he said. I mean, I, I mean, you can sit here and criticize it if you want or find fault with it, but how can you when it hasn't been tried yet so you don't know? Right. And the reason I say that is because there's been one thing that's been tried a lot that doesn't work. What could that possibly be? Well, you have a long list. <laughs> well, the biggest one that's the most ridiculous, I think, is dumping good money after bad or no results. Now, I'm not talking about results in terms of growing the game via quick start slash 10 and under or you know all these other programs they've had throughout the years that have come and gone. I mean, that's a separate issue. I'm only talking now about the player development. And so you can search for data on how many kids are getting into the game, how long they're staying, are we losing them, what sports are we losing them to, Um how far do they ultimately get in terms of level? Where do they bail out of tennis after they've been playing for a while? If they do decide to stay in, um, you know, what effect does it have on high school populations in terms of the playing? And that's all fine. And that's all important. You know, there's two ways to look at the growth, you know, growing tennis. You've got a top down and a bottom up. Right. Um, you know, the top down in terms of really putting together you know, elite players as you, you know, developing players to where you have a bunch of players at the top and that trickling down or the bottom up theory where you get a billion kids in and then find ones that are good. Now, coach Creasy, his, his idea is that, and he makes a brilliant analogy. I don't know if he came up with it. Um, I don't remember. Um, but he makes an analogy, uh, with an orchestra. And he, and so his, his theory is that, you know, bottom up doesn't work. Participation, so just recreation type level, just let's get everybody in and, and have all the, you know, whatever formats you want to play, yippity do, and and do all this will not create champions. But champions will create participation. Right. And so, I mean, is that, before I give you the analogy, does that make sense or do you feel like? Oh, yeah. I think it, I mean, and just to give background, you know, we haven't had a top American player professionally in how long? I mean, it's at least 10 years. Roddick. I don't know what Roddick was, but he was top he was and number Fish, one. And Fish was right in seven, there. Yeah, six, seven, yeah. Seven. But that yeah. was, was that early 2000s, the last time? A little bit later. Yeah. Like four or five, right. maybe. So that's at left. least 10 years without a player in the top five, a new player. Right. Serena is obviously number one, but she's been around for a lot longer than that. Right. Right, we can't. Yeah, we can't just keep uh, riding that train, as it were. You know, at some point, that's gonna go away. She's gonna retire. So I think her and Tom Brady. <laughs> if she are ever play loses, to, if she ever loses, she'll yeah, retire. Her and Tom Brady are gonna play until they're seventy. But no, to me, that is kind of the inspirational 
thing for a lot of players is you want to see those players and be like those players, and that makes more people want to play at a high level. Now, I will say this. Bottom up from the standpoint of health of our game is important. So I do think it's I do think there are it's twofold, but I think what what Coach Creasy is talking about is having a dedicated program from our quote unquote yeah I did air quotes uh, national governing body of ten, of tennis having them involved in one or the other really uh, neither although the grow the game part from the bottom up I think that's where they should be right that's where they should be. Get some perspective on who you are and stop trying to be something else. Yeah, you run the best tournament in the world. And you own the facility and the tournament and the circuit that leads up to it, the U.S. Open Series. Got it. That's wonderful. Right. And the pro circuit with all the... But that's just providing a conduit for players to play, um, but not actually trying to develop the players that are in that, in that uh, tournament structure. So they should be involved with the bottom up for the health of our game. I mean, the bottom line is, if you you know triple the amount of people playing tennis at the lowest possible levels just for fun, that's still going to dramatically increase the health of our game oh, and yeah. your wallet, right? You specifically, yeah, and you know sales of everything, rackets and balls and clothes and shoes and everything, and it becomes more popular on TV. It becomes more popular. You know, in high schools and even in college, you know. Um, so there is, I, I do think there is a place for the bottom up strategy. And I think the USTA should wholeheartedly be a part of that, providing resources and, and all of that. But I think it is clear when you take somebody like Pat McEnroe, who played at a high level, I mean, you know, everybody forgets that, I right. mean, because of his brother, but he played at a very high level. Davis Cup captain, commentator, coach, all the other things. And paid him a million bucks a year for what? Yeah, just to be a figurehead, essentially, I would assume. Nothing. Now yeah. he's gone. Now Martin Blackman's in there. And I don't know. I, I coached at a college in the same conference that Martin Blackman was coaching at for one year. I mean, he was at for, there for more than one year, I think. But, I mean, I, I was just there, overlapped with him for one year. So... That's the limited amount of of interaction I had way back when. Yeah. And so with that little bit of, of, uh, you know, uh, interaction, I can say wonderful human being. I doubt, you know, and again, you hear things and other people say stuff, and I'm sure he's a wonderful person and has good intentions, but he is a cog in a wheel that is the bureaucracy, the behemoth that is USTA. And so that just is going to lend itself to a struggle in terms of, of achieving his ultimate goals, um, w- which are the USTA goals um, of growing the game. And again, I don't bl- it doesn't mean he's incompetent. Well, yeah, because one person can only do so much. I mean, well, no, I mean, well, but to be fair, he is the, you know, I don't know what his title is, but he's in charge of the whole thing yeah. from the performance side, of the player development side. So and so he does have the authority to yeah, make changes, in other words. Yeah, so he shouldn't, you know, so, so we're not talking about just some person working in a cubicle. I mean, he's the one that's making the decisions on how this thing's going to go. And I still don't have a lot of hope for him. I have a lot, a, a lot of well wishes for him. I hope he does. But I just can't see 
any light in the end of that tunnel. Um, you know, I was looking at some numbers on the TIA, TIA website, and there was one graph that from 06 to now, actually I think it was 20, I think it went to 2015, um, we basically, we hit a peak in 2010, I think, of over 18 million players. And now, it, but it's been pretty steady all the way throughout that entire time period. Right, despite you know more people population growing i mean we're you know probably 20 or so million between 20 and 30 million people just in general not tennis but people you know population in general in this country and we've stayed relatively stagnant on numbers and if you assume that new people are coming to tennis every week as i'm sure they are in whatever format that means the same number of people that are coming in are also leaving tennis so that is where they're not doing a good job of keeping people involved. Well, it's funny as I'm as I'm uh, uh, you know prepping for the show, I'm I'm looking at different articles and and it's funny to see different years, uh, you know, as it goes back and how you know one year it's so oh, wow we're about to do some amazing things and next year it's like oh my god it's just the sky's falling <laughs> we're history everybody might as well take up cricket because tennis is over <laughs> and so you know there's always panic there's always you know so I don't want to be. I don't want to get too crazy. Like I think the world's ending. The tennis world, I should say, is ending. Um, but you know, I'll give you an example. There's a there's an article from uh, Forbes on Forbes dot com from 2015. American tennis tennis's deep decline necessitates shift to youth development. So that's a little panicky. Yeah, and it, you know, I don't know the details of the article, but it could be talking about. Is that talking about pro tennis declining? Is it talking about just total tennis? Um, there, well, uh, there was a couple of different things. Uh, one of which is, is the level in terms of the highest levels, pro- professional tennis, and then also American kids getting scholarships. If we're not good enough to compete with internationals, they're beating us out for scholarships, not because they speak another language, but because they're better. Right. Which you hear that a lot. Yeah. And that's a whole nother, that's definitely an episode of the podcast we need to have at some point. Um, cause I've evolved on that issue to be honest with you. Um, which it doesn't matter now. So then, you know, then you have other articles, you know, talking about how, you know, we're seeing the largest growth or our sports, one of the fastest growing, um, you know, this, that, and the, uh, you know, comparing us to lawn darts and what, you know, what have you. Um, so it's a little bit schizophrenic, but, but I think the thing you can look at is, you know, again, skip the participation part. I mean, it, clearly the USDA hasn't made a lot of ground, in that, I mean, if they were, if they're spending the, they make well over two hundred million dollars a year right. at the U.S. Open, and guess what? That's a job they can do fantastically. They yeah. run the U.S. Open. I mean, I don't know what what kind of you know hell's going on behind the scene, what hell's breaking loose behind the scenes, but from from every aspect I've ever seen in the U.S. Open, it's lovely. And that's got to be the bulk of their yearly revenue, I would assume. For oh the yeah, tournament. I would say ninety something percent. I would have to imagine. Yeah. Um, but they do a great job, and it makes a lot of money. I mean, it, their stat, I think, is the largest attended annual event in the world. Right. Um, now, you know, you know uh, World Cup soccer is more, but it's every four years. So right. this is an annual event um, that is bigger than any other annual event uh, in the world. So they do that well. But it doesn't look like from either end, the top end or the bottom end, they're doing anything right. Yeah, I mean, if we're not increasing our participation numbers and we're not increasing, you know, the number of Americans in the top 20, 
then what what are they succeeding at? I don't know. Those are kind of our two markers. I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you what. They just built a 100-court facility in Florida. <laughs> Only 100? Uh, well, and four indoor. <laughs> or maybe a six. I don't know, but it's just... It's an oddly small number of indoors right. for a state that it rains all the time. Um, so yeah, that facility. And I, who knows what that's? I don't know what the purpose is. I mean, are they going to have coaches there? Because they tried that. They had right. a whole bunch of national coaches, and they got rid of them all. Right. I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like there's a plan. It seems like they they have their hand in a cookie jar that they shouldn't have it in because people like you and people like coach Creasy. And, you know, oh yeah. I put you in the same sentence. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you know, all the coaches at all the facilities, th- private facilities, I don't mean private from the standpoint of a, a country club, but private as in not USTA, they're right. giant nonprofit. You know, all these free market people are out there doing what they do. And some of them aren't concerned with elite players. But, I mean, we have a co- several different facilities in DFW that are. Right. And guess what? They have success. A lot of players come to them. And are they getting funded by the USTA? I hope not. Um, not very many of them anyway. Right. So, so it seems to me with the amount of money they're spending, they're failing. And I think failing miserably. I don't, I don't, I don't see any real sustained success at either end, the lower end or the upper end. Well, getting back to what you said earlier about dividing competitive and recreational, I mean, you need to have a department that's all about getting players to the top level. And then you got a department that's all about increasing volume of players. Well, that's tie them together. Well, that's the funny part is that I don't even think they tie them together on purpose. I think there's such a big giant bureaucracy trying to run everything which I think, again, I, there's an old saying called they're getting too big for their britches. And they're big. So, you right. know, their britches are big. But they they want to, you know, have a hand in every aspect, and they can't do any of it right. Right. If they would step back from the development side and just let the free market do that and grow the game, and then one other aspect, maybe give opportunities to uh, demographics, whether it be financial or uh, minority or you know special populations as you call it for wheelchair stuff like that that's another aspect that they have a ton of money that they can utilize not themselves but utilize to guys like you who are looking to maybe start a program from the ground up but you don't want to take a hit financially which right. is nothing wrong with that i mean your court time that's your real estate right so you wanted to start a program maybe reduced you know uh cost for your junior program or whatever it might be the the USTA should say all right here's your sub you know and subsidize that with the kids no questions asked i mean not no questions asked let's right. be realistic here i mean cuz <laughs> a lot of people will take advantage of it but to some degree no questions asked just to get new players in you mean no just to let you do your job because yeah. you know how to do your job at your club, in your town, in your city, with the kids in your community, right? better than somebody sitting in White Plains, New York. They don't know what they're doing. I don't care how good of a player they were. I don't, have, I don't care how good of a coach they are. Right. They can't tell any individual coach anywhere how to do their job better than that individual coach. Now, there's some shitty coaches out there. We know that. There's some coaches that don't need to be around any other human beings 
certainly trying to help <laughs> with their tennis. But but you know that's a casualty of war. You know they may if they if they get a grant from the USTA and it doesn't work out, hey, walk away from it. It's fine. It's a lesson learned. This guy's or girl's off the list. But they are trying. They tried you know develop all these programs, shove them down our throats. And the the funniest thing about that is, I mean USTA. You can ask any pro that's my age or older. When you're a youngster still. How many programs have come and gone? Oh, I hear about them all the time. Yeah, just disappeared. Oh, let's this pathway, that pathway. We got an idea. Start here, go here, go here, go here, and then you'll end up here. No, you won't, because the program's gone halfway through that stupid pathway. And then you've promoted it as if it's the greatest thing, and then you look like an idiot when the program doesn't exist anymore. They don't care. They right. don't look like an idiot because nobody pays attention. Right. Except some of us. Right. I mean, a lot of pros know, a lot of teaching people know, you know that that the USTA is just a big waste of time and money. So. You know, I mean, getting back to what you said about, you know, I, I think what Creasy was really talking about is splitting, you know, really separating out the competitive side and what he liked to call performance and then call everything else participation. I kind of like recreation better than participation, but hey, what do I know? Uh, I am the winningest coach not in the ACC ever. <laughs> N- um, so, but I even think take the participation again, it's still. USTA needs to get their hands off of as much of the competitive or performance side as possible. So, but I, I do think there's some sense in which the USTA wants to sort of uh, candy coat everything and make sure everybody thinks they can do everything. You know, if you're starting some little girls' twelves, you know, rec league somewhere that you're going to go through that process that league to the next league again their pathway nonsense and get and they just need to separate it out and, and just let reality lay where reality yeah, is right. so well and i think our job as coaches of course is once you get players in the program you need them to stay in the program but you know the usta has to get the people out on the court the first time you know whether it's through marketing or they don't have whatever. to but they can assist in that that it, would be something that they could do better once they're on the court, it's kind of up to the coaches to keep them involved to some degree, not 100%, but right. you know, that's where our part comes in. Right, right. I mean, more so. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of public tennis, and I've been out there hustling, getting right. kids, you know, going to elementary schools and doing PE programs, having camps, really, in, you know, inexpensive camps. So, uh, you know, where you have – a racket package that goes along with the week long camp, that right. kind of thing. Cause yeah. they're not going to have equipment. They're not going to, so you do all that kind of stuff and you just beat the bushes and get every kid out and then do your, like you said, your responsibility is once you get, keep them involved in the program, yeah. help develop them, obviously. Uh, and that goes for adults too. Um, but I think those kids, those players and those coaches and those pros, you know, just need to ha- have some, uh, some perspective, have some sense of reality and say, Hey, recreation is not a bad word if you're if you so if i told you right now who is the best player in the world what would you say you mean right now right now well i guess not I, ever right <laughs> right now who's the best player? <laughs> don't don't please no uh andy murray i guess all right so i mean i don't know that i agree with that but he's the number one ranked player in the world right so let's just i mean let's not get into an argument right. about that i just this is just for illust- you know to illustrate the the, the point so Andy Murray's the best player in the world. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Did you mean the best player that 
you know, has blue shoestrings? <laughs> no. In the was, world? That was just the best everything. Just the best tennis player in the right. world. Did you mean the best tennis player in the Wimbledon 35s? <laughs> yeah, see, that's you can add in surface and so age group. And, and that's kind of the point is that there's so many different, you know, back to Creasy's idea about getting rid of age groups from the performance side. Not advocating getting rid of it from the rec side. Right. Because you want to have a good experience for the kids. You want them to have fun. I mean, tennis and lollipops, that's wonderful. There's right. nothing wrong with tennis and lollipops. I will tell you this. If we could quadruple or triple the amount of people that played tennis, our world, our country would be a better place. Right. That sounds corny, <laughs> but I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, there's. I've got this right here. So there's a ton of benefits. And, and as a coach, you tell this to parents and whether they buy it or not. I mean, of course, every sport has its benefits, but tennis in particular, because individual sport. Yeah. There's other individual sports, but in tennis, you don't get punched in the face or choked out or you have to tap out. So there's individual sports out there, but ours, I think, is... haven't attended the matches I've attended. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Those are recreational matches. Get competitive. <laughs> um, so things like learning, uh, developing social skills, learning how to manage mistakes, because you're out there by yourself. Right, problem solving. Yeah, problem solving, uh, discipline, work ethic. Um, accepting responsibility. That's something you don't have to do in a team. Right. You don't have to accept responsibility because little Johnny didn't pass me the ball right. or, you know, little Sally was hogging the ball or whatever the case may be. You don't you don't have to learn some of these things you do in an individual sport. And guess what? Teamwork is overrated. <laughs> it's overrated in the workplace. I mean, if you're, you know, in a competitive sales type environment, I mean, you've got to make your number, and so does the other person. Right. Well, guess what? You ain't helping somebody if, no. if it's, uh, you know, a uh, commission-type situation. So, obviously, t- I'm kidding a little bit, but... Well, you add I, in doubles, and you can get the teamwork aspect to be on a team, but... That's our, that's, our, that's our weak excuse for teamwork, <laughs> but, but no, I, I think training, there's a team environment in training, yeah. especially at the higher levels. But what I'm getting at is that you don't have to be on your way to Wimbledon or you're a hacker that doesn't mean anything yeah. to anybody. I mean, there there is a sense that if, if the USTA would just do their damn job, that's the theme of the pod. I just need to change the title to <laughs> right. do your damn job. If the USTA would just do their damn job and grow the game at that level from the bottom up and get off our backs and let the rest of, you know, I say us, I mean, I'm not developing juniors. I coach college, so I, I don't have a separate program uh, in that regard. But, if they would get off the, those folks, those those people, and, and get out of their hair and, and quit putting you know uh, restrictions on them and, and making you know give them hoops to jump through, then I think there would be a cleaner, easier not easier that's not the right way to put it, but but a cleaner path for players to develop and get you know get to the level. And guess what? Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Raonic. All di- you know, all elite players, all great players. I guarantee they all came up in different ways. Right. They all learned to compete different ways. They had different coaches that had different styles. Uh, I mean, Coach Creasy's hard nosed. He's old school, but he is always teaching. And there's other coaches that are more laid back. You know, you think of a European style coach that might have it. And so, if you get the USTA who's trying to put everybody in a cookie cutter. That might work by luck for the certain players and coaches that all that meshes together and falls in the right place. 
But, I mean, it's America, baby. A free market's where it's at. Well, and that's why almost all the American players play the same way. And you look at Federer and Nadal and Round, those are all, uh, Djokovic, those are all completely different styles of play. Right, the curse of Boletary is what yeah. I like to call it. <laughs> well, and, and listen, he he's a free market guy, right? right. I mean, he's, he's hustling, working, and you can't argue with his results. I mean, he's had a ton of players come through there. Now, he's not the sole coach of every single yeah. player that came through there and had success, but he had an impact on not just players, but he had impact on our game. So that first strike, you know, big forehand kind of game, I mean, that, that is, a, is a game that, uh, that certainly for a, a period of time as technology in uh, the game was changing worked fantastically. But now the players have physically caught up to the technology and the ability to just hit the shit out of the ball. Right. They can now run it down. Yeah. So you're watching matches where guys are running to balls, hitting them as hard as they can, and then running to the next ball. Their opponent hits it as hard as they can, back and forth. It's it's insane. But it's some of the highest level, the highest level tennis to date in right. the history of the world. Um. So it's still it's definitely fun to watch. It was definitely a period where it was one two done, one right. two done on the men's side. Yeah. Particularly. Um. And and so it's good to see that the evolution. Has has come this way, so that one that that kind of first strike stuff, it's uh, I think it's uh, less effective. It can be, yeah, but it's well, less it effective. You, it can get you to a certain level, but we're not seeing any top five players playing that style. You know, grind. You know, playing seven matches like that. Number one, you have to be on that day to play first strike. If you're missing, you know, you have a bad day. You're out. If you're grinding out points, you know, you're more likely to. Have more consistent results. Well, opinion, I would think the the biggest forehand out there um, that I can remember that everybody made a big deal about was when Del Potro won the U.S. Open, right? And he was hitting forehands over 100 miles an hour. Yeah. So I mean, now it's hard to quantify his game and what it would have been because he's been so injury prone. But uh, and that could be the ballistic pressure on his body from swinging so big, you right. know. So I don't know, but I don't know how we got off on this topic. But <laughs> that's what we do. Well, kind so, of back to what you said about USTA. Fault. Yeah, usually. <laughs> but we talked about American players in the top 10. USTA developed players. Are there any that were even top 50? That is that a good question. Their, you know, USTA program. That's a good question. Serena and Venus certainly didn't. Right. Um, you know, I don't think Steve Johnson played college tennis. Well, it may be that uh, if they did, it's just because at this point now, the USTA is so involved in every aspect that it's hard for them not to have a, a, a you know, a hand right. somewhere along the process with someone. Uh, so that's a little bit unfair of a, you know. Yeah, I mean, they played USDA tournaments, of course. Anybody who grew up in America has to play USDA well, yeah. tournaments. Well, sort of. Right. Well, you don't have to. I guess no. Serena and Venus didn't either. But. Well, no, but you got ITFs. Right. We just don't. Uh, the USDA has basically shut out ITFs. Yeah. Which, I mean, that may, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, there's some kind of a, gentleman's agreement or it's just policy you the itf won't go into somewhere with with uh with you know an organization as big as the usda i don't know that's a question i don't know about but uh but yeah i i just think that we just need to be a little more hardcore with getting the rec side away from the performance side and telling these rec kids hey you're rec right Here's what you have to do. You can try, but you f if you fail, you'll be right back at wreck. And will that discourage? I mean, we were talking about this the other day. That might discourage some people. 
right. some kids. Well, but that kid wasn't going to be the kid that is on the tour anyway. Right, but but we lost him as a player potentially in tennis also. Right. And I say to that, then maybe you just didn't love the game or your parents don't see the value in the game enough and maybe they just thought, wow, here's our meal ticket. Let's try to push him to the top and see if you know if, if you're if you're playing tennis to go pro or bust, then you were never going to be a part of this game right. anyway. Well, and my favorite parents are the ones that come up to me and say, hey, you know, I want my son to play tennis and have fun and play it for the rest of his life. It's not the parents that want their kid to play college tennis or go right. pro. And let me ask you this. Are you yearning to uh, develop professional tennis players, or do you find some satisfaction in taking a kid who has never played, introducing him or her to the game, helping them develop to be able to play and compete? Recreation doesn't mean you just you know skip around the court right. singing zippity doo eating candy bars and drinking Cokes. I mean, you still get to compete. Right. I mean, I watched you play a, a league match. You were competing, man. Yeah, there was some skipping. And- but you're a little skipping. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but my point is, I mean, you gain some satisfaction in the fact that that kid may go on to play high school right? and have a great career, maybe a lower level college yeah, and loves tennis and loves tennis. And then you know what they tend to do? They tend to continue playing immediately following college. Or if you're a so-called elite player, you get through college, you're done and then you're done. And then we don't see you again for about 15 years. So about 10, 10 or so years where you just disappear and then you might come back if you know you want exercise and don't want to hit the treadmill so yeah and if you're averaging that out maybe that person isn't even contributing as much to tennis as the one who plays twice a week for right. their whole life sure yeah they kind of it's like a binge drinker yeah, as right. opposed to the steady alcoholic <laughs> if you're a bar owner you prefer the steady alcoholic right cuz uh, they're always going to be there buying beers and they're never going to throw a chair through a window <laughs> so what we've learned today is we want steady alcoholic tennis players and not binge drinkers yeah Sounds good. Drunk tennis is fun to play. I'll be honest. You got to do it on clay in case you fall down. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the show without Savannah. We didn't, to be fair. So, Savannah, if you're out there listening, call in. And uh, But uh, I think we solved the problem. She disagreed with everything you said today. Yeah, in spirit. But uh, I think we solved the problem of how to get more professional players involved. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining the revolution. Bye, guys.